Let's dive into the book of Revelation. Go with me to Revelation chapter 1 in your Bible. The title of my message today is an introduction to the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first verse says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. I want you to pay attention when you read God's word. It's very helpful. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. This is truly an angelic being. Verse 2 says this, Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, this is about John, even to all that he saw. Verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Hey, I'm going to get a blessing today because I'm reading the Bible to you. But specifically, these words don't appear in other portions of Scripture. But there are cautionary statements here as well as in the end of the book of Revelation that we must not change anything. We can receive a blessing from reading them aloud. And it says this, you are blessed today because you are hearing this revelation, the words of this prophecy. And it says there's a blessing in verse 3, for those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I want you to understand, God's word is not as confusing as some people make it out to be, and it doesn't have to be as mysterious as some people imagine it to be. You just heard two references to timing inside of those first three verses. It says of things that must soon take place. And it says, for the time is near. They were dealing with things in the world at that point that were being fulfilled according to God's word. And we are still today dealing with things that God is fulfilling in our day and in our time. So let me say this about what we're going to do in this series on Revelation, the correct context for interpreting the book of Revelation, or for that matter, any book of the Bible, is actually the Bible. I know that sounds super elementary, and you're like, Pastor, don't criticize me or talk down to me. I'm really not trying to. I'm trying to help you understand that the stuff in Revelation, when you read about a beast with eyes on its wings and you hear about eyeballs and flames of fire on wheels and things like that, there are images that are there that's not the only place in the Bible they appear. So it would be important for you to find out where those other places are. The right context for understanding the book of Revelation is not the New York Times bestseller list that's published. It's not the current geopolitical events that are happening in the world today. It's not the latest uh, and greatest craze, you know. It's not even celestial events that are happening. And that's a hint to the red blood moon uh, that, you know, there's books and a series that came out that talk about things lining up in the heavens. Let me tell you something. Although God does work his mighty wonders through the heavens, he's not waiting for you to sit there with a star chart and look to see. He wants to speak to you in a real way in your life today. Amen? So don't be reading a horoscope. Don't mess with that stuff. It's not about that. It's about knowing God's word and letting God's word be God's word. Let it primarily influence itself. Secondarily, we can look at other things that were written during the same time period. Those things would be called extra biblical sources. So I can look at things that are historical documents that were written by historians or theologians or pastors, teachers, government leaders during the same time period. And I can understand the events that were talked about in the Bible because they, they match up or line up with history. So let me say it again. The correct context for interpreting revelation is the Bible. I want to show you a chart on the screen. Feel free to take a picture of this. We'll try to get it um, posted as well online. Uh, It's a bar chart that I found, and the source is here at the bottom of the screen. It says, The Old Testament in the Book of Revelation by Steve Moise. Um, The chart on the left-hand side goes to the number 125, and this is the number of occurrences or allusions 
to details in the book of Revelation from other places in Scripture. In fact, it's said by the majority of scholars that Revelation, the book of Revelation, holds the most allusions, even though they're not direct quotes and references, to the entirety of Scripture, more so than any other book in all of the Bible. So there are 82 occurrences in the Pentateuch. And you say, Pastor, I'm kind of (laughs) new. What is that weird word you just said? It's the first five books of the Bible, okay? So in the first five books, there's allusions in Revelation to things that happened in those first five books 82 times. The second is Psalms. The book of Psalms has 97 references that are alluded to in the book of Revelation. Then Isaiah has the most with 122. Jeremiah with a couple dozen at 48. Ezekiel and Daniel and then minor prophets. There are a few verses scattered throughout Zephaniah, Zechariah, and different places that are all combined by this author that say, hey, listen, these total hundreds of allusions to other places in Scripture that it would be really helpful for you to get to understand. So I'm so glad that most of you showed up who were here last week because I heard that it was a wild service for some of us doing a whole church prayer meeting. (laughs) That was a little unique. I'm so glad to see the majority of you back. Please pray for those who are not here. Um, This series is going to be in-depth, so I want you to take notes, and I want you to... What I want to do is I want to excite your interest in the word of God, not, not to find a place where you connect a dot and go, Ooh, does this have to do with Russia? Not to do that, but to actually just look at God's word and say, okay, what has already occurred and what is yet to come. And it's not a doom and gloom story. (laughs) Y'all have got to perk up this morning. The book of revelation is a book of hope. It's about God's eternal plan Finally coming to fullness and to fruition, to completion, his comprehensive plan from our beginning. It's amazing when you consider this. So reading God's word, but not studying it is a monumental mistake that a lot of people make. That's why you'll hear me reference things like that, saying don't play roulette with the Bible and just read your proverb for the day and then be done, actually dig into the word of God. Because here's the thing, as you dig into the word of God, it actually digs into you and it helps. It can help you resolve issues in your life, in relationships. It can offer you peace when you had none before. There's amazing properties or benefits that come from not just the reading but the studying of God's word. So I want to encourage you. I don't know what books are on the shelf in your house. (laughs) Don't buy a book on the end times during this series. Don't go to Amazon today and get the latest, greatest prophecy book or manual. Just start reading the Bible that it's really, really, really going to be helpful to you. And I'm going to help expound each week as we go through. And here's what I'm telling you. You say, Pastor, I was never that great of a student. I was like a B, C student, D student, barely graduated. They didn't let me walk the aisle, whatever it is. And you're telling me almost on a weekly basis that I have to be a student. And I'm really not that great of a student. Here's what I'm telling you. It's not that difficult. It's really not. With today's access that we have to all the resources and study material, it's not that difficult to actually just dive a little bit deeper. So referencing that bar chart and showing you all of those occurrences that are alluded to in other places in Scripture, what I want to highlight is this. John, the Apostle John, who wrote this um, book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, as well as all the other New Testament writers, they were dedicated believers who had studied God's existing word. So when Paul begins to talk, he's not only met God... Jesus himself on the road to Damascus and had a revelation of Jesus. He's not only received 
in his hearing, the Bible says, some understanding of the teaching of the other disciples who lived during the days that Jesus lived. But he's also a avid, an avid student of God's word. And so when he begins to talk about resurrection, he's not just talking about a current event then. He's referencing things that are already talked about throughout God's word. They were students of the word of God. Now, I know you're not going to become a writer of a biblical book, but and neither am I. But I do think that God wants us to do a little bit of digging. Can I get a loud amen? amen. So, with the divine help of the Holy Spirit, as well as those previous writings... They knew what God's word had already said to that point, and they were able to make connections that we today, even with all the bells and whistles of technology, um, don't necessarily attempt all the time to make. I also want to give you this warning before we go further into the book of Revelation in this chapter specifically today, which we're only going to get to verse 8. I don't intend to hand you a man-made, perfected idea of the exact chronology of every event that's listed in Revelation. I I cannot do that. And I don't think anybody who's written a book and made money (laughs) can actually honestly do that. There are some very obvious things, but I don't want you to come in with the expectation of, okay, pastor's going to tell us when the rapture's going to happen. Pastor's going to tell us when the tribulation begins. I can't do those things, but what I can do is lead us through with God's help to help us understand his word and let that word really reveal itself to us so that you and I both get a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm really hoping to do. So let me encourage you to be like the Bereans. And you might not even know who they are. They're a small group of people only referenced a very small number of times in the New Testament. But it says that Paul said in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, he says this, that the Bereans, they were more noble than those that were in Thessalonica, and they received the word, it says, with all eagerness, and they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I want you to be like a Berean, not a barista, a Berean. I want you and I both to be those people. Make that our practice that we examine scripture. So let's continue reading chapter one. Chapter one, verse four, it says this. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, this is going to be a slow process. So I'm going to tell you to look up at me, not because I think you're falling asleep, but because I'm going to pause in certain places. So the seven churches that are in Asia... You'll come to find those if you read chapter 2 and chapter 3. But essentially, they are major cities and cultural centers. And all seven of those are in what they called then Asia Minor. But it is what is called today Western Turkey. The ruins of these cities, and some of them are still active, but the ruins of these cities have been discovered. And each one of them had a church. It says this in verse 4. He says, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, oop, weird stuff, (laughs) who are before his throne. I'm going to try to give you a little heads up before we get into the wild, okay? Who is, who, who, who was, and who is to come. I want you to understand this. This is a common greeting in Paul's writing in the New Testament. It was a common greeting in letters that Christians wrote to one another, even that didn't get into the Bible, was this grace and peace. It's like when you say, hello, good morning to someone. Uh, it, It was the way that they greeted one another. But there's something significant to understand about what John is saying here, because you can never issue authentic grace to another person or experience authentic peace without it originating from God. You can talk about, oh yeah, I'll give you grace on that grade. My wife probably has said those those words to a student before. Uh, Other teachers in the room may have done the same thing. Uh, You can do that, 
but authentic grace that's truly understood the way that God's word helps us understand it, that can't just be a human emotion where I cut you slack. Can I get an amen? If I'm going to show you authentic grace, I've got to have God as the originator of that grace. If I'm ever going to say my life is at peace, it's not going to be because there's more money in the bank, I bought a bigger house, or any of the things that you can think of in that regard. It is a, what does the Bible say? A peace that passes or surpasses even your understanding. That while you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you won't fear any evil because God is with you. So there's something powerful in just kind of dissecting piece by piece God's word and understanding that you really can't extend authentic grace to anyone or experience peace yourself without God's help. Something significant in verse 4, he says, is, was, and is to come. Now, if you're a Christian, you've heard that phrase before and it just rolls off the tongue and there's nothing super significant about it. You think about the word eternity. You're like, okay, well, that just proves God is eternal. He was before I was. He is now and he will be. Here's something really interesting. The name of God has always been held in high regard to, with his people. In fact, we sang about it this morning. There's no other name above his name. Um, I've been in some wild and exciting ministry moments where I've seen people get set free, like physically, visibly, there is something that changes about their countenance at the speaking of the name of Jesus in prayer and the binding up, the, the taking up of the burden and lifting it off of them by the power of the name of Jesus. There is no other name that's higher than that. There's a reason why we think that and experience that now because the Jews held the name of God in such high regard, they wouldn't even utter the full name. They would take out certain letters. And even today, if you read anything written by a rabbi, you'll see G-D with the missing O if they're writing it in English because they are taking the third commandment very seriously, almost legalistically so. I believe I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and I can say his name in prayer. I can cry out, Father, help me, even casually in a moment of need because God hears me when I pray. So we have understood it in a new and a fresh way as a result of the writer of Hebrews saying, Jesus Christ himself has become the doorway or the way for us to enter in to God's presence. So the name of God has been important and it was revealed at a certain place in scripture to God's people. Does anybody remember Sunday school and felt boards where you took the little people and you know the, the Sunday school teacher took the little images and put them up on? Some of you taught those classes and I'm thankful for it. I sat in some of those classes. I remember. I remember vividly the image and I, it's burned, no pun intended, it's cemented in my head of Moses at the burning bush. I can still see it clear as day. An old dusty green felt board is probably cork and they wrapped it with felt and they took out of an envelope these little characters and they took this burning bush, this bush that was burning but was not like consumed. It was really interesting. As they talked about Exodus chapter three. This is where God declares himself to be eternally existent. And he says to Moses, when Moses says, okay, so this is really awesome. This is pastor's paraphrase. This is really awesome. You gave me a job to do? Great. When I go to those people and tell them what you told me to tell them, who do I tell them sent me? And he says, I am that I am. That's why we call him the great I am. This is something that is interesting because God's people have understood that he was eternal from the beginning because he's revealed himself to us in that way. He always was God before we were people. He is God now, even if you don't feel like you see him or recognize him at work. And the Bible says 
he will always exist. There is no shadow or turning, the Bible says in an older version. There is no expiration date to God. So by powers of deduction, that's why you hear me saying about the Holy Spirit, in case you have Baptist roots, Catholic roots, any other roots of any sort, there's no expiration date to the Holy Spirit in the Bible because he is God as well. We worship a triune God. So John then adds this phrase, though. You have to understand, the Jewish people understood he was and he is But now the believers come into a different, newer understanding or a developed understanding of, and he will always be. John adds this, and then it shows up three other times in the book of Revelation. It'll show up in verse 8 of chapter 1, as well as uh, verse 4, and chapter 4, verse 8. And here's what's really interesting. Doing some research, John's days, during his day and time, the biggest deity that people worship during those days, that would be the Greek gods that we hear about in the movies and all that stuff, the kingpin, the highest authority, was the god Zeus. And there was a common phrase that those who worshipped him said, which was, Zeus was... Zeus is and Zeus shall be. So now John is tying this in and saying, wait a second, he will be. Jesus Christ is actually, God the Father actually, the Holy Spirit actually, they are now and will always be and they're better than Zeus. So there was a contention there. Essentially, John is adding this is to come, asserting that God is the most high. He's above all others. There is no one like him. Now the weird stuff. Verse four. Verse four, it says this, the seven spirits who are before his throne. Later in the chapter, in chapter one, which we won't get to all of it today, as well as in other places in the book of Revelation, you'll actually understand, come to understand, that those seven spirits represent the seven churches, they're representative of the seven churches that are being addressed. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, let me just highlight and remind you this. It was not originally written to you. It was written to these seven churches, but we have the benefit of it. Amen? Can I get a loud amen? Amen. So we have the benefit of understanding that it can apply to any segment of the body of Christ today. But you need to understand that these seven spirits, you'll see in other places in Revelation, that it's talking about these seven churches that are receiving this letter. Now go to verse 5. It says this, And from Jesus Christ... The faithful witness, we're going to park on each one of these phrases today. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. It says this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Verse 6 continues the thought and says, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God And Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever watched a TV show about a crime that's committed and judgment and a courtroom? Anybody? Anybody ever seen? Okay. Anybody ever served on jury duty? (laughs) Was it a waste of your time and you didn't make a whole lot of money? Right? Okay. Um, I got called for, I've been called several times for jury duty, but... I got called for a um, capital murder case in Newark, New Jersey years ago and um, had just come out of seminary and was in church ministry at that time. And um, all of a sudden, uh, they had raised a red flag when they said, oh, there's a, there's a preacher in the jury box over here. So they called me into the judge's chambers to answer questions with both sides of attorneys because they were nervous I would be too... Have too much integrity or maybe judge too harshly or to whatever the case may be, uh, in order to convict the person. Let me tell you what. 
being in a judge's chambers. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure (laughs) of doing that, but it was terrifying. I was sweating from parts of my body I didn't know could sweat, okay? Like between my toes and stuff. I was just like, ah, it was terrifying. I want you to hear when when I read the word of God and John the apostle refers to Jesus in verse five and six, and he says that he is the faithful witness. This is a judicial term, meaning that he is not lying about what he saw, that he is trustworthy, amen? He can be trusted. So as you dive deeper into the meaning of these things, it's really, really important. The firstborn of the dead... I had this imagination while I was studying for this message. Uh, you know how you go to, well, maybe not you. I haven't either. But you hear about people going to fancy events. And uh, then they swing the doors open. And they, you know, you've been to a wedding. Let's use that. Could you imagine hearing? And now I present to you the firstborn of the dead. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of introduction is this? And here's something a little bit deeper. If you have any knowledge of the word of God, you know Jesus is not the only one and not the actual first human body to have been resurrected. So how does John intend to refer to him as the firstborn of the dead? Very simply, John understands that he is the only begotten son of the father Listen to me, the only created in flesh, innate, okay, in flesh, son of God, who has died but has risen, and because of his work, resurrection that we just celebrated at Easter, because of him resurrecting from the grave, he is now the firstborn of the dead. He holds that title. It's a great title. It's a weird one, but it's a great title because it refers us back to something that is the cornerstone of our faith. I've got to tell you something. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. Let me go further. If you don't believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. Let me go even more boldly and say, the cross means nothing without the empty tomb. That's what we believe according to God's word and the plan that he's laid out for us in scripture. It's for us to understand, yes, the penalty of sin had to be taken, but that's not the finish line. The hope of resurrection is where we are supposed to aim our eyes or aim our focus. We're supposed to be looking towards the resurrection of ourselves. So, Scripture makes it clear because he resurrected, you can be assured that you'll be resurrected. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, if you have a believer who has died and believers who are grieving for the dead, then you should not grieve as those who have no hope because you do have a hope. You'll be resurrected one day and be with them again. That's powerful. That kind of hope that people in the world don't have. They are lying when they say he's in a better place. They don't know. (laughs) He might be in a worse place. But I know when my father passes away, when my mother passes away, godly believers dedicated to the cause of Christ, to evangelism, to sharing their faith, I know that I will see them when I die. That is powerful when you think about the hope that we have. If you want more information, I encourage you to take time this week and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul the apostle talks at length about the resurrection for us, not just about Jesus' resurrection, but he he relates Jesus' resurrection as being the thing that can offer us the, the hope of resurrection ourselves. And another place you can read is John chapter 5. You say, John chapter 5, that doesn't sound familiar. (laughs) Jesus has told um, his buddy Nick, Nicodemus, in chapter 3, that none should perish 
but that all should have everlasting life, John 3.16. Jesus is still on a discourse. He's answering questions to people, and he's, he's having certain statements are being made in these chapters. And John chapter 5, he actually says something that I bet half of you might not realize. Jesus himself, in verse 28, says this, All people will be resurrected. Not just believers. That's kind of interesting. But he says something further in verse 29. He said, well, it's on the screen in verse 28. It says, don't marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, eternal life with God, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You'll be brought to account for the things that you did in the body, whether you were a believer or not, and whether they were righteous or they were wicked deeds. So he's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead. And he's also ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, this is going to be a challenge. I've been talking to the same buddy who's recently really dug into the word of God and said he appreciated the podcast and he's hungering for more uh, information, you know. Uh, he said, I've, I've got some questions. Can I email you my questions? And so he sent me some questions that are common questions we hear. And among those was the idea of if God is good, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, some of those sorts of things that, you know, you hear of from time to time. But one of them also referenced this. If I'm to understand that Jesus, as John just said, is the ruler of the kings of the earth, how in the world did Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Genghis Khan, any of these horrible dictators and leaders who have led massive murder and atrocities towards humanity, how does this play out? So I want to help you understand that today because you'll probably have even more unanswered questions at the end of this series than you started with. But I'm going to help you understand this, what John is trying to get us to understand in saying that Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. Romans chapter 13 gives us some insight. It says this. It says, Every person should be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. You mean my mean boss that gives me a penalty and makes me work extra on a project, but lets everybody else go home early? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, if you can, I would encourage you to be a student of God's word and understand God rose allowed to rise evil dictators and leaders in order to punish his people and correct them and try to get them on the right path. He allowed Nebuchadnezzar to do it. He allowed Babylon to exile his own people. He, he allowed Assyria to conquer his people. So this is what I'm referring to when a couple weeks ago when I said our understanding of the sovereignty of God needs to be holistic. We need to understand he is high above all things and he can do what he wants. We may not understand every detail, but we also need to understand this according to Romans 13, one and do a deeper study on yourself this week. This phrasing that is used here by Paul, the apostle to the church in Rome, where it says there is no authority except that which has been instituted by God is not talking about a man named Hitler. It is talking about positional leadership over people. In other words, by God's providence or allowance those who are either righteous or wicked get into those places and those positions of authority. But what Paul is getting at and what I want to share with you is that you honoring your bad, mean, evil, no good boss can actually be a testimony to Christ in your life. It can be something that changes their heart. And even if it doesn't, 
it has the power to help you in your life, in your character, in the development of godly character in your life. Proverbs chapter 21 verse, verse 1 says this, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I don't claim to have all the answers when it comes to the sovereignty of God, but I do know that he gives and he takes away, that he did punish Nebuchadnezzar even after allowing him to rise to that place of leadership. Because if you've read that story or ever been in that Sunday school class, that was a wild one too, okay? What, what God ended up doing. And you can read more about it in 2 Kings chapter 20, but here's the deal. Later, God pursued Babylon after it had fulfilled its purpose in captive, taking captive the people of God. It says in the book of Isaiah, in chapters 13 and 14, it talks about Babylon being judged for its wickedness. In other words, God allowed it for a season in order to do his purpose that it was meant for, and then he judged them because they used their free will and did what they did. And the king had an individualized judgment put against him. If you could read about that in Daniel chapter 3 or 4. Daniel chapter 4, you can read about Nebuchadnezzar uh, being cursed with a curse and judged by God. The next statement's Describe Jesus' wonderful work on our behalf. And I love what John writes. He says this, he loves us. He's freed us by his blood. And he has made us into a kingdom and priests. I don't know if you recognize this or not. And you didn't wear any priestly garments today. And I didn't. I'm in jeans, as always. Uh, you, according to God's word, are a priest there's not just me as that person who can lead you spiritually. Hello? The word of God, especially in Hebrews, says we now have a great high priest who is before the Father on our behalf and that we have become priests. Well, what does that mean? That means that we've been given access and here's what John is doing. He's connecting that to the word of God. Listen to what Exodus chapter 19 says when Moses is told by God to go and tell the Israelites these things. He says this, now therefore in verse 5, if you will indeed pay attention, listen to the two key words, obey and keep, okay? Obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, the Bible says. So John is tying this. He's, he's grabbed that thread all the way from Exodus chapter 19 at the beginnings of the people of God and now has said, Jesus Christ has loved you, freed you, and he has made you into a kingdom and priests. Revelation chapter one, verse seven says this. We're only going to verse eight. So if you're starting to fall asleep or something, just know the end is near. <gasps> bum, bum, bum. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm so glad some of you are awake to laugh. That's good. Um, Revelation chapter one, verse seven. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Have you ever imagined this? Have you? Several of us have, okay? I, we've talked about the rapture and the different things, you know, like the Left Behind series and the movies and whatever. I've had different imaginations of this, but this is really cool that he's coming on a cloud. The fact that he ascended uh, when he was here on earth for 40 days after uh, his resurrection and he was talking, preaching, teaching, leading and physically here on the earth with his people and then he ascended, he was taken away and at the top of a mountain, what are there? Clouds. So here John is saying, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth, all the tribes of the earth 
will wail on account of him. I believe there's something significant there. As I thought about this, and I was thinking, all the tribes of the earth, well, they don't all worship God. They don't all know the Lord and are saved. I have a feeling there'll be two different types of wailing or crying or mourning. I have a feeling there will be those who are saddened. The The word that John uses when I looked it up in the original phrasing that he used, it actually means cut to the heart as if mourning your closest relative. Like your, your wife passed away, you just heard the news, and this is your emotion in that moment. That's what he's using when he says, will wail or mourn on behalf of him. But I believe there's going to be joy at the recognition of what our Savior has done for all of us. I truly do. The description of one coming on the clouds is really important. Um, It's applied to God the Father in four places in the Old Testament. It says in several different places. But I want to tell you what I'm going to talk about several times throughout this whole series. And it's a theological... uh, It's not a theological word as much as it's just a higher education word that I want you to understand the meaning of because you're going to hear me say it. It's the word motif. Motif. Not motive, but motif. What it is when we say there's a motif in scripture of gardens, you heard me preach about the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Eden, and the Garden of Paradise will be in someday. It's a reoccurring theme that continues to happen or a central or dominant idea that happens throughout Scripture. So this whole cloud walking, cloud riding sort of thing is not uncommon. It's not the first time it shows up when John writes it. So Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-six. It says, there's no God like our God who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. Psalm 68, 32 and 33 says, kingdoms of the earth, sing to the Lord, sing to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice. Psalm 104, verse 3 and 4. He lays the beams of his chambers on the water, makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. Isaiah 19 holds a different perspective of the Lord riding on a cloud. And it says it's an oracle written to Egypt. So it's a a phrase or a message delivered to Egypt, concerning Egypt. And it says this in Isaiah 19.1, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So the God of love and rescue rides on those clouds and the God of judgment and justice rides on those clouds. So those are four different places that God, the almighty, the heavenly father is referenced. But now John is saying that Jesus is coming with the clouds. So you could immediately think, okay, well, then that just means that John is making sure that everybody knows Jesus is God. But there's something really, really amazing in the book of Daniel. There's a correlating Old Testament passage in Daniel that talks about a human in the book of Daniel that Daniel sees in a vision, a human riding on the clouds. Who else but God can do that? I know we can get in an airplane, but you're still not riding on a cloud, right? You're, you're flying through them at high speed. You're not, you are not just floating on a cloud. Listen to what it says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And can you believe we're almost done? And I only got through eight verses. But, I mean, it's heavy stuff. Listen to what Daniel says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man. This interpreted properly is a human. So a son of a man or a son of a woman, you would say, is human offspring. There's been no other before that in the entirety of scripture reference of any sort that there was a human that would be able to do what only God does. And here Daniel is seeing this one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. 
who is God the Father, referenced there. And he was presented, this man was presented before the Ancient of Days. It's not just any man. Verse 14 says who this man is. To him, that man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Dominion, his dominion is everlasting. It will not pass away and his kingdom cannot and will not be destroyed. Who is this man that Daniel sees? But Jesus. So now John, who is familiar with the Old Testament, knows those prophecies, knows the Pentateuch, knows the first five books of what we call the five books of Moses, but he knows all of those details. He is making this correlation and he's saying, wait, I see a human figure coming on the clouds too, which tells me something amazing. Jesus God's only begotten son who was crucified for me, resurrected and lives forever is coming on the clouds of glory. Amen. Daniel was written several hundred years before Christ arrived on earth and revelation. The book was written somewhere between 40 and 60 years after Jesus death. The dates uncertain. That's why I give you a little bit of a roundabout figure. But within a a generation, generation and a half of Jesus' death, that's when the book of Revelation gets written. How did they see the same thing except for God? The correlation is just astounding to me. Verse 7 continues and says, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Uh, And I would say the way that I understand that, uh, you, you may have your own personal feelings about it, but piercing the the word piercing that's translated there is actually physically piercing so i think that it means it's those who actually participated in the crucifixion or shouted crucify him and were there but also all the bible says all the tribes of the earth will grieve or be cut to the heart when they see him verse eight's our last um, stop for the day and it's stopping on a good note It's always a good note if it's in the Bible. Jesus, God, speaks in this moment. John's been talking about what he knows of Christ. And then all of a sudden, God kind of interrupts the narrative and helps by saying this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come the Almighty. It shows up again, repeated in Revelation 22 and a couple other places in the book of Revelation. But I want you to understand this because you may have come across this and maybe you're a very knowledgeable Bible study scholar, okay? But for the rest of us, Alpha and Omega, we're not really sure. So I'm going to help you. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So you've heard our English phrase that we say when we're talking about something that's comprehensive, we say it covers A to Z. We mimic this from ancient times of someone speaking and saying, I am from A to Z. I encompass all things. If you're to read John chapter 1 and hear about Jesus being in the beginning was the word, and you read Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 about the word of God being spoken to create, then you understand he is the beginning. And then if you keep reading through the book of Revelation, you'll understand he will not only see us to the end, but through it, amen, to all of eternity. So these titles are important because God himself uttered them. God is saying of himself, there is no other God. I am the first and the last. And then you hear Jesus actually referencing the same thing in Revelation 22 when he says of himself, I am the Alpha and Omega. The God you serve is pretty amazing. If he put that much work into the details of putting together our scripture that we hold, 
And if he cared about using an adulterous king, a wayward son, a bratty younger of the 12 brothers who couldn't shut up talking about how great he was, if he could use a harlot in scripture and she's part of the lineage of Jesus Christ himself and I can look at those things and see the thread of a God who loves me and cares for me. He knows what you're dealing with at work. He knows what you're dealing with at home. He is caring and concerning and full of compassion for those things. This last verse that we stopped on today should give you hope. Hope to know that there is hope for our future. But I think even more than that, there is hope for your present. You don't have to wait to be hopeful in the future. You can actually have hope presently right now. And I would even take it a step further and say, regardless of how bad, murky, ugly, tragic your past is, it's redeemable as well. Amen? Because God, He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Because He loves you. He's, he's desired to set you free, to bring you into His kingdom, to make you a priest. We often pray that prayer, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? I would encourage you to do that today. Maybe there is something that strikes you about confessing maybe your lack of interest in or, or your laziness when it comes to the spiritual discipline of the word of God in your life. Whatever it is that the Holy Spirit speaks to you, I tell you this today with all sincerity. Act upon it. Do something about it. Heavenly Father, the Ancient of Days who rides on the clouds, who sent his son to die and live again on my behalf to give me hope. I thank you, Father, for the gift of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we, as we dive into this series and into this book, that you would really truly reveal yourself to us. Let little bits and pieces stick out in our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, develop, help us develop a hunger for your word because your word brings life. If you need prayer, I want you to step out right now and receive it today. And let's worship the Lord in this last song together.